0: Link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-age children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them, and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to SpeechDynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Personally, I've always enjoyed working with individuals with Down syndrome. In fact, years ago, I worked at a place called the Hope Center in Maryland. The youngest was three, the oldest 50 years of age, and all of them were either cognitively or physically impaired, or both. Oh, how I loved them, and I learned so much from them, especially from those with Down syndrome. Oh, how I wish I could go back and give back to them all the amazing and valuable information and techniques I've learned from my guest, Jennifer Gray. Well, before we do officially get started, I would like to mention disclosures. Regarding financial disclosures, Jennifer Gray does receive an honorarium for this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and she does have other courses that she has done for SpeechTherapyPD.com. I also receive an honorarium for the Speech Link. And I am also a presenter for SpeechTherapyPD.com and receive royalty payments. And I own Speech Dynamics. Regarding non-financial disclosures, neither Jennifer nor I have non-financial disclosures to report. So there we go. Welcome, everybody, and a warm welcome to Three Super Techniques to Foster Academic Success for Those with Down Syndrome. So I am Char Beauchart. speech language pathologist host on the speech link. And my goal here is to connect and link us with outstanding professionals in our field, of which I definitely consider Jennifer to be one of them. You all bring their knowledge and experience to light so that we can apply their experience and uh, their results and then improve to improve what we do. And so today is an absolute treat. This is her second appearance on the speech link. And I have to tell you, The first one was like just amazing. I learned so much and I said, okay, you got to come back and expound more on, you know what, treatment. So that's, she's, she's back, you know, for a second time. So we'll see how we do it. We may go for a third. Who knows? So let me tell you a little bit about her. Jennifer Gray, MS, CCC, SLP, earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in speech language pathology from Northern Arizona University, then studied for two years post-grad at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She has taught speech and fluency at the undergraduate level and speaks at local, state, and national conventions. In addition, she has written a variety of articles about speech production. She has over 20 years of experience working in universities and public schools and private practice in early intervention settings, treating speech, language, and feeding delays and disorders. And in the last 12 years or so, she specialized in communication and feeding for those with intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders, especially those with Down syndrome. She practices in the Denver area at Gray's Peak Speech Services and specializes in childhood communication, speech, motor planning, and feeding disorders. She trains families, caretakers, therapists, and educators her passion is to continue to seek and innovate evidence-based practices to ensure functional outcomes for educational, social, and independent living success. And I am so excited that you're back. Welcome to the speech link, Jennifer.
1: Thank you. I'm very excited to be back. I had so much fun the first
0: time. Oh, good. Good, good. Well, I tell you, that date, just in case anybody that's listening now, would If you would like to go back to that first one, it was recorded on July 29, 2021, and it was podcast on the speech link number 64, so just in case. And to get us going here, let me just say that you have an amazing grasp of the strengths and the weaknesses of those in the Down syndrome population. So to get us started, and yes, I, I want to, to spend the bulk of our time on treatment, on therapy techniques, and so on. And you have your your three items that you've all organized and ready to share with us. But to get us going, would you please give us an overview and maybe down a little bit into the specifics of the communication characteristics of those with Down syndrome?
1: Yes. So, Of course, like most of us, this is not something that I knew was going to happen. I didn't mean to work with people with Down syndrome or children with Down syndrome or motor speech disorders. I'm old enough now that motor speech disorders weren't even a thing yet when I was in school. So (laughs) I kind of just happened upon this and was doing things that were working and then realized that no one else was doing them, basically. And so as funny as that sounds, the things that I was learning after school were things in the oral motor area, the feeding area, things that we weren't taught. We knew a little bit about what weren't taught. And so in the process of learning how to treat kids that needed this, because I had it was brand new to me, we only had certain kids coming to us for those therapies. So these were children that had dysarthria or ataxia, or these kind of motor issues that were also greatly impacting their ability to eat, but also their ability to speak well and to speak Mm -hmm. clearly. And so really my background in fluency, I really liked speech from the beginning, but I also kind of grew up in the time of language. And so as much as our field is founded in that speech piece, Really, we've been looking at language for such a long time, and we've done really good work there, but our kids that really actually need that speech practice kind of haven't been getting it until we really started to kind of look at motor planning, right? And that kind of made us come back and really look at, okay, how is this different from this and this and this? What's actually making people sound difficult to understand when they speak? And so I ended up treating a lot of people with Down syndrome, some with autism, and then that that motor planning, cerebral palsy, that kind of group But the majority of people that I was seeing had Down syndrome. And so when I left that job, and I moved to Colorado, I entered early intervention, which was also new, but I had now this kind of background. And so... It kind of got around that I was doing speech in the Down syndrome community and talking to parents through those years, no one was working on speech. So every parent and most educators and therapists were like, what was the main thing they were coming to me for? They were coming to me because they want others to understand their child. Either they can't understand them or others can't understand them. And parents, moms mostly, you know, they're just with this kind of heartfelt plea. They really don't understand my child. They don't know how smart he is. They don't know that he's funny. They don't know what he knows. I do, but they don't believe me, right? And this was that story that kept coming and coming and coming and it was always the same. And so I kind of made a decision. I said, well, then that's what I'm gonna do. That oral motor feeding piece was there because it's all connected. But I really wanted to focus in on that speech piece. Why were we not addressing this number one issue in this population? That's the number one genetic disorder in the world. And so it really kind of became Mm -hmm. a like almost not an obsession, but I just wanted to figure it out. And there wasn't a lot of places to go (laughs) to figure it out. And so I kind of read everything I could and I still do that, but really also learned to listen to parents. And to listen to what worked and what didn't work and how they mm-hmm. knew their child and how I knew their child. And then combining those landed me here basically where, gosh, it was working, but there's way too many kids who need help. I can't do that. And so I started to kind of accidentally teach or speak for free at all these conventions and parent organizations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And people seemed to like the information and that's where we are now. So <laughs> trying to now come and look and help therapists, especially the therapists that listen to your podcast in the schools. That's probably the hardest area right now for therapists with this group, because <laughs> there's, it's hard. School therapists have a lot of kids, right? They have a lot of things yeah. they have to know. And yeah. this population isn't really you know in the forefront of things. And so we don't typically get trainees
0: or know much about them. Yes. And you're going to share that with us. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So their communication skills, their communication skills, where are they? Give us, you know, four or five of the top characteristics or components that you've noticed through the years.
1: So we love this word communication, right? Because it it kind of Mm -hmm. envelops everything, right? We can use sign language, we can use speech, we can use pictures, we can use blah, 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 blah. And what I kind of found was, and I was using that word a lot, and I found that, gosh, I think I need to stop using it because the problem with this specific group is they're really good communicators. They are brilliant at everything except speech. And so without us really realizing it, they were communicating and we weren't getting a lot of speech practice. So these kids can communicate beautifully with gestures, sign language, facial expressions, hugging you, throwing themselves on the floor. It's really rare that we don't know what they want. (laughs) And so I kind of had to go away from that communication word, even though, you know, of course it's there. But me specifically to kind of hone in on that speech clarity piece. So with that speech clarity, what is it? What is it about this group That isn't working. Why are they difficult to understand at every single age? Why are they difficult at two to understand and at 15 and at 30? We're not doing this right. It's not working. That kind of intelligibility piece, what do we all do? We all think it's articulation, and that's what I was hearing. What you know, I would ask, because I'm in private practice, so I would ask, you know, what are they working on at school or wherever else they were getting services? And the answer was always, or is most always still, certain sounds. And so kind of a word that's starting to be used now more is this comprehensibility word. So intelligibility, meaning can they say the sounds right? And most of our kids can, by the way, in isolation, in single words. And then they get smarter. We teach them more things. We work on their language. They're putting it all together. And now we can't understand anything because now they're smarter, but we forgot. We forgot they have dysarthria. We forgot that it's harder for them to move that quickly to say that much at once. So these are really big, broad areas. But that comprehensibility piece was huge because now I could look at them and go, okay, this isn't our tick, even though it's there. But it's randomly there. It's not phonology. That can be there. But it was really like, gosh, what else is coming in here? And that's that anatomy and physiology came back right into my life again, even though I started there. And gosh, this really is more voice, resonance, movement, fluency, motor planning, and then the research now is telling us they have all of these things at once all the time. So we can't isolate
0: it. We can't just say we're gonna work on R. You can, but it won't work. Okay, let's jump into your three. And I know that you use the term active engagement. And I you know I've heard that before, but you know, I think of it in the context of a person with Down syndrome. And active engagement kind of takes in, you know, we talk about receptive and expressive. That kind of just takes it all in, as well as throw in some processing and some intent and then how you formulate and all of that. And I love that term, active engagement. And then you have slash active listening. And I love this phrase. And you sent me this. And and, I mean, I kind of read it over it. Students with Down syndrome... Do not learn well through instruction alone. They must be a participant. And I'm going to say yes, definitely for, for kids with Down syndrome, but I'm going to say definitely for any of our clients. I mean, that is therapy, but especially for this population this is kind of new for
1: me. I kind of came upon these words and these phrases when looking at adults with intellectual disabilities. And these yeah. were some of the phrases being used when teaching more life skills in independence. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful.
0: Yeah. It's a nice blend, isn't it? Yeah. It's perfect. And it was yeah. actually
1: in the context of teaching adults with intellectual disabilities to cook. They weren't mm. learning it because they weren't doing it. And it was scary and it was too big for people. So I kind of was pulling that in a little bit and then looking at our kids in classrooms and then knowing the medical piece behind it. So almost everyone with Down syndrome has hearing loss, either permanent or fluctuating. So if you've never heard things well and you have dysarthria and you have all this, you know, this rap sheet of medical stuff, our kids can't listen well. And then I'll go further, mix in this executive functioning, right? This short-term verbal memory, short-term working memory, this stuff is hard. So a classroom that has a lot of kids and a lot of stuff on the walls and a lot of activity, they aren't doing well when it is just auditory instruction. And then, you know, we've got, oh, there's so many, we use all these visual things. And I go in these rooms and I'm like, holy smokes, I'm not sure what to look at, so I'm not sure that they know. And so they really became inactive observers, especially when we start talking about inclusion,
0: which I'll try not to do because that's a whole other area. That's that's podcast number three.
1: (laughs) I know. So they're sitting in these beautiful classrooms, but they're having a heck of a time learning or participating at all because they weren't being actively engaged. Now, how do we do that? That's probably a fourth podcast, but as long as we know that, if we know how they learn, so there's that strength and weakness piece, if we know how they learn and we know that they have to be active in that process, and then we start to look at something we'll talk about a a little bit, like answering questions and accessing what they know. So here we, you know, like I said, the parents know that they know this, but how do we as therapists and teachers know what they know? And we don't. And that was causing, is causing, a huge mismatch between a parent and a teacher. And a therapist who's stuck in the middle, right? Who doesn't have a lot of resources. And so if the child isn't listening well, and they're not actively engaged in the classroom because maybe the teacher doesn't know how or 10,000 other reasons, our kids are kind of missing out and they can't listen well. And they weren't taught to listen well. And so here's a bunch of kids you ask them a question and they're constantly answering questions wrong, or they'll give you some fillers or they don't answer at all. And now as that keeps going, they lose their confidence that they can be an active participant, that they can actively engage in that classroom. And this is when we start to see those behaviors kind of explode, right? It's kind of a long answer into getting them actively engaged. How do we do that?
0: Can you give us a few ideas?
1: Yes. They are really good at visual information, right? Because their auditory systems are terrible, for multiple reasons. So, wait, not just hearing loss, but they haven't been taught how to process auditory process what they're hearing, right? Internalize it, come up with the information in their brain. So they have to go to that file cabinet, and pick out that file. Then they have to think of how they're going to plan out, how they're going to say what they know to answer that question. Now, this is seconds have gone by now, right? And then they have to plan how to say it, because my therapist wants me to say that sound again, or that phrase again, in a certain way. And now what just sabotaged them was a working memory, because they all of that stuff in one question, that they had to remember how to do by the time that they get to the answer, it might be gone.
0: No doubt, because teachers move right on through, whether that's in, you know, the general education classroom or in a self-contained, or if it's RSP, resource, you know, teachers just move on. They go through when they do that two or three times, and then they have this reputation of, oh, you know, she's not going to know the answer, or he's not going to know the answer, so I'm not going to go to that child. So as a therapist, then you're saying that, and two things sort of, you know, stood out to me. One is to give them processing time, maybe for the teacher or whoever is doing this, count to 10, (laughs) you know, keep the kids at bay, keep them from answering because every kid's going to want to jump in and answer for that child. So that's one thing. And also I'm wondering about that really nice, colorful, very visually exciting room to the teacher but maybe not to the kids, where they're so focused on and drawn to different visual things that maybe they missed that auditory piece. And so I call it sensory bombardment. And so that kid is kind of on overload with all of that.
1: And we have vision issues in this population to make it even worse, not like sight even in terms of can I read this far or close, but we've got all sorts of issues with the eye muscles too because Mm. that's dysarthria in the whole body they're really grasping and they're trying to attend but their system doesn't fit the environment right so that's important to know because that's where our negative behaviors come from that's when they start acting out because they can't participate yeah that's a normal response
0: actually right? yes so yeah. how do what
1: do we do the processing time is one we know it's visual. So can we give them visuals that they can be trained to look at instead, right? Of course, we have all of our AEC stuff that we can use. One of the strengths you will read about this group, which is a little bit confusing, is this social strength that they seem to have. They enjoy others, right? Yes, they do. I
0: love working with kids with Down syndrome.
1: Yeah. If they're really having a lot of negative behaviors, right? It's easy to be like, ugh. So it it can be confusing in a school setting here. They're very social and lovable, but they're also acting out a lot, right? So we have to know that base. But what else can we use visually that they're good at to kind of focus them in, to kind of help them in these classrooms? And some of the ones that I use, obviously are schedules, timers, blah, blah, blah. But reading, that can be one that we'll talk about. And even prior to that, having peer models They can help them. Someone that's just a little bit better than they are at something and then flip it when they're in a good situation. They give me a teacher to someone else. But having a peer model who can kind of help in that classroom, redirect, oh, we're on this page right here you know, that's sitting next to them. And then the idea of video modeling that maybe we can use either as a classroom or in therapies to say, okay, if the second that they tune out because there's too much auditory stimulation or visual stimulation, they immediately go into their heads and they find things they like. And it's actually usually... Scenes from movies, TV shows, commercials, songs. Really? And so you'll see them. A lot of them are just kind of, they kind of look like they're just happy and in their own world. But when I've kind of talked to parents and watching kids, especially when I'm doing teletherapy and I'm talking to the parent and the child is still on the screen, you can see them even signing songs to themselves. They immediately turn inward. And they see things in their minds like movies, we think.
0: Okay, so you're saying they turn inward. Are they just sitting there or are they watching a video of some sort?
1: Just sitting. So if the teacher is talking and they're in a classroom and they're not being engaged and they're not destructive at that time, so that's just sitting there, they're not listening. They're not taking it in most of the time. Unless someone is kind of helping them do that. So if we know that mediator is really important with our paras or at home, and there's really a lot of fun information out there and research on video modeling recently. So the idea of that video model or that peer model is if I see someone else do it, like I need to do it, and it's focused right here and close That I'm going to remember it better because I saw it, or I heard it, or I did both. Now I might be able to do that task better. So it's not just the stick figure pictures or even the real pictures. But if we know they're seeing in their heads movies, we can use that to kind of guide us how to help them focus at school.
0: Are you talking maybe video social stories or something like that? Pretty much, we use those social story ideas. So yes, it can be used
1: with pictures and in sequencing, or it can be used in feeding therapy. We'll use videos of other children eating, right? So a picky eater, seeing another child eat something that they don't want to eat, overwhelmingly, you will try to eat that food. And so we know that they don't want to be us. They want to be their peers, right? So if they can see, watch, and model a peer doing something well, they're much more likely to do it themselves. Wow, wow.
0: I like that a lot, yeah. Why didn't I think of that?
1: (laughs) So a lot of what I do is, and I tell parents, I don't think I ever really have a session where I don't have a picture or a story to use about them specifically, which kind of brings us to another thing that we can use. If we're having trouble engaging a child, use what they know. Use what they like. You got to find that out. Right. And this is tough in schools. Right. I know we need like all of the things. You know, I can't bring this in where I can just call the parent and say, or text and say, hey, please send me the pictures of when you went to the zoo this weekend. And then I can use it and it works really well. But that's harder in schools.
0: Yeah. That takes extra time, but it would be worth it, I would think. So if we know these things sitting there that we can try to use
1: in the classrooms and knowing how they learn, or even just knowing a couple of things that they like can be a huge way to kind of even get them back on
0: track. You know, I guess that you could, you know, ask the parents, the caregivers, you could ask siblings, but you could also ask them or maybe have pictures and have them choose which one's your favorite. Do you have a favorite? You know, maybe it's a certain food or maybe it's a, an activity or Something they like to do on the playground or something at home. I mean, I don't know. But right. And even yeah.
1: things like math, you know, where this is really, we know it's really hard for them. Yeah. Any manipulative of any kind, those little counting bears. I mean, things like that work really yeah. well because now they can touch yeah. it and they can see it and it's not abstract and it
0: means something to Makes them. Sense. Makes sense. I like that. Good, good, good. Okay, now you also have down here, and we're still under number one active (laughs) engagement, just in case if you're taking notes and wondering where we're at with all of this, you have under here teach students to ask and answer questions. Yeah, okay, I'll snap my fingers. Right. (laughs) Yeah. This is probably the most frustrating. (laughs) It is. is. It's tough. It's
1: tough. Doing this for a long time, it's amazing. But now that we're finally getting more information about executive functioning and how those eight things, you know, some people have eight, some have five, some have three, but all those pieces, basically the one that I focus the most on is inhibition in working memory, right? Can they inhibit a okay. compulsion to do what they want to do instead of what you're telling them to do, right? Um, okay. So that auditory or that visual bombardment that you were talking about a little bit earlier. One of my favorite activities is to see if they can listen in a field of visual information and listen to my instructions about this field. So, for example, I might throw a bunch of picture cards on the ground and then ask them to bring me some. I do this one a lot. That can be really hard in the beginning if they're not trained to really listen and we kind of have to bring them back because they'll go get the one they like or the first one they see, right? And they'll tell me all about it. And then we're derailed, right? Yeah. Super fun. They're communicating and we forgot, right? That happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) But if I train them, okay, listen, are you ready? You got to listen. Okay. Here it goes. You ready? And I might model it first. I'm going to go find, like, can I find it and then show it to them? Okay. This is how it works. Can they then do what they need to do in the midst of all this other stuff going on? and remembering what I said to them despite the fact that they just saw a bunch of really neat stuff. So that's kind of one of those where we we need to kind of teach them in order for them to do the thing we want or eventually to answer the question. And what I've learned is it's very, very rare that a child with Down syndrome doesn't know the answer. It has nothing to do with knowledge or the answer to the question, it's more, did they process the question? And were they able to retrieve the information they already have? And the funnest way to do this, because its I think it's hilarious, because it happens every time, especially if you have a parent or you know the answer ahead of time, right? So if you know the answer to the question ahead of time, it helps in a school situation. But what did you have for breakfast today? That's so hard. Okay, I'll go first. I had oatmeal and blueberries for breakfast what did you have blueberries so they might say the thing that i said because they can yeah. grab it really fast and i heard it and i remember yeah. it so i have blueberries yeah. or the more common answer for our older kids i had waffles with syrup and if i have the parent there because i'm in private practice the parent always is <laughs> like nope, nope. that's no nope. nope. you didn't nope. have that you had toast." <laughs> Right, And so yes. this happens all the time. But if I didn't know the right answer, I'd gone with blueberries and we'd keep going on our I'll story. running. Right. So why does this happen? They know the answer. What are we doing right now? And we're showing them. There's this beautiful video from a, a reading program that I use. And it was recently put out by the, the person who, this is the So Happy to Learn program. She's working on this same thing. <laughs> like, why are your questions so hard? And in one of her videos, she reads a page and it's just, you know, four or five words and has a picture. And then she asks the child what the picture is. And the picture is actually a house. The child looks and she asks him, what is that? And she's pointing to it. And as the child's looking at the picture of that house, he says tiger. Now, because this woman is brilliant and she does this all day, she's like, oh, no, no, we read that tiger book yesterday. What's right here? And then he got it. But what if you didn't know that? And you're sitting there going, tiger? We haven't talked about tigers. I don't see any yeah, tigers around me. Tiger. No is that, is that, that his, his favorite animal? Tiger? Or is that another book? Even yeah. though he was looking at it, and it was right there and he was doing it, he grabbed an older memory of a book he liked that he did with her wow. yesterday. Yes. And when I saw yes. that, I was like, thank you. Say us <laughs> yeah. all the time. But she was able wow. to get him back so fast because she didn't correct him. She simply said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I guess there's a little correction in there. But then she said, no, we did that one yesterday, gave him validation, and then brings him back and gives him the answer again, and he has to say what she said so he didn't have to go back and retrieve it. He got it right there. Oh, boy. I know, and it seems so simple. Yeah. Recasting works. And yeah. so yeah. how do we do that without being like, oh, my gosh, and then giving another
0: label because he thinks the house is a tiger. So now, and that's tough socially. Yes. I mean, yeah, and kids are going to laugh and think he's, you know, or cute.
1: They might think it's super cute, right? This is Maybe problem. they'll
0: think it's cute. cute. Yeah. Oh, tiger, yeah. Oh, no, it's yeah. not a tiger's yeah. house. I mean, yeah. wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. See that is a nugget you know, to sort of stash into your brain as you're doing therapy, but also to share with your parents and with the teachers and siblings. There's
1: usually a reason the answer was what it was. We just don't know it. And this is something I hear from parents every day. They'll say they went somewhere and she answered this way and then it got confusing. Or you're with parents that you have to be like, zip it, because they're always filling in right? They're always telling you instead of the child telling you, or the child just has to look at the parent and then they speak for them. And the parent doesn't know if this is a bad way to do it. They're trying to be efficient, right? Sure. Even that parent training, if you're not in the schools can be interesting. And so knowing where their crutches are, because they will learn that super fast. So that's that communication piece is the second they know they don't have to retreat it. They just have to sit there and wait for you.
0: Mm-hmm. They'll do it
1: and they'll wait for you to give them the answer and then they'll say the word. And when we sure. do speech therapy, right? Oh, that's all we care about. We just want that word. Did they say it right? Is this what we need from them? But it's all that knowledge about how they're built, right? As long as these, these <laughs> phenotypes is the better word. But yeah, once we know idea. that and we can kind of guess, you know, maybe why they're, why they're derailing and that. Particular activity, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. always assume at least that they can answer the question. We Mm -hmm. just need to figure out how to get them to a place where they can retrieve the information well enough and then have the courage to try to plan it and execute it because that might be hard in a classroom.
0: Very good. Very good. Let's move on to number two. And I have here on my notes use strengths to combat needs. Did you mean combat? I know. I love that word. Yeah, tell me what you mean. It's not strengths and weaknesses. It's not to compensate for.
1: Yeah. We have to fight it almost. Okay. Because okay. everything we learn is the negative first, right? We know, and then parents will talk about this. How did you learn your child has Down syndrome? And they will tell you this horrible story of everything their child won't be able to do. It's in every book. It's in every description of the disorder, Right of the syndrome yeah Yeah. and so we're stuck there even as we're pathologists we're taught to assess we're taught to label and name what we see and so we don't always jump to that positive what are they good at and truthfully I never did either until I started working more with parents and they were telling me what they were good at and then over Mm -hmm. time they were all good at some of these things in common right like visual like reading. When I was doing my CF, <laughs> we thought kids with Down syndrome couldn't read and that it was pointless. Now we know that these children can read very quickly, very young, and it can be a beautiful tool to help them speak and engage in educational settings. And now yeah. by this, I don't mean literacy, I mean reading very different things because a lot of educators will kind of smash that down like, well, they don't comprehend. Okay, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some of the stuff that Libby Kuman uses with visual pacing boards. So you have a circle for each word or a circle for each syllable and they can look at that. And know I have three things to say. Who was that? Tell me that name Libby again. Libby Koeman, Dr. Libby Kuman. She's in Maryland. She's probably... The leading researcher in SLP for people with Down syndrome in the United States. Really?
0: Is that C-C-O-O? Or uh, C- sorry,
1: K-U-M-I-N. Oh. Was I always forget her, her university, but she's in Maryland. Okay. Um, Thank you. What she says is, okay, we know they're visual. So if we use this circle board, and really all you need is a pen and a piece of paper, right? They do very well knowing, okay, I have to say three things. Instead of juice mom juice please if they see the three circles or whatever that phrase is and so we have to kind of get past that and this is all AAC right we know this stuff but it can be pictures it can be that video modeling we talked about but those pacing boards with these boring circles don't use smiley faces or stars or anything else interesting because I'll say smiley face smiley face yeah yeah. (laughs) because they they love meaning in the second that they have something like that they want to talk about it so it needs to be boring So that it can represent... (laughs) I love that. that. Almost everything you use needs to be boring. These kids are visually in tune. So if you want them to do something, don't show them anything else. Really busy pictures are great for receptive language. But for this spoken piece, let's make sure they know what to focus on because they're going to get it wrong again, right? And the teacher's and we be like, no, it's not a smiley face, it's a circle. And they say circle. And she's like, no, right? And we can create...
0: Yeah, get, get it gets weird. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: But reading is a pacing board. So if my circles work, Jennifer, now I know how to say my name with those three circles. And then maybe we can transform the circles into my fingers. And now I have fingers, so they're always here. And I can say Jennifer, and then I don't need those anymore. But if I can read, maybe that child who only says one or two words at a time can now say more words at a time because they can read. And now we can practice and now they can hear themselves and see it. And what these kids never get, this is sort of number three, but is verbal practice. By the time they're three, they've had so little speech practice compared to their peer who's neurotypical at three that the numbers are probably staggering. And I've looked for them and they don't exist. So if anyone's doing their PhD research this would be great, how much practice they don't kit or how many words they've said compared to their neurotypical peer by that same age. And so Mm -hmm. we need practice. How do we get it? How do we get practice when we have a kid that might be all over or we're not sure how to access them? This is a little nugget that is extremely useful in ways it blows my mind every day how well they do with that. My son's or neurotypical, doesn't really work that way, right? And so when I see it work for these kids, it's so fun. I show a video in most of mine that are, you know, reading um, the brown bear book with one of our kids and having that melodic to a right brown bear, brown bear. That's another strength. They love music. And I hate to say they love music, but they do. Well, every human does. But Everybody you ever see, oh they love music, they love singing, they love dancing, it's in their makeup. Yes,
0: right? Yes, you it's know, like I'm the thinking third back chromosome to the, is music. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. I mean i am I'm thinking back to the kids I worked with. And yes, you are so right. And we sang songs. And I did it for a variety of reasons.
1: And so reading that book we with the visual, that. right? It's just a bear. Nothing else on the picture. It's the bear or the bird or the dog. And it's the same tune. It's repetitive over and over. We have to say it slower because try to, try to say that brown bear fast. Try to read that book fast. Can't because the song is slow, right? It's a song first. Brown bear, brown. What are we doing? We're stretching out the words, mm-hmm. those vowels, which really are the meat of every word, not the consonants. It's <laughs> so right? stretching those beautiful vowels right. out. And now they're going to remember it. Because it's a song and I remember songs well. And it's a book, maybe. So we've got the tactile. Yeah. And then I have a puzzle, which I can't find anymore, but it has two pieces for each animal, the head of the animal and the tail of the animal, and you put them together. And so mm-hmm. that is just, that's kind of an extreme example of how we can put all of this together so that they can get that practice. And then obviously the same with questions at the end of the book where, you know, the brown bear books, most of them have the animals just the animal pictures. What is that? Bear? What is that? Bluebird? What is that? White dog? We're probably going to get really good answers to those questions, including that, you know, that descriptor, that color, and then the animal. Whereas if we didn't do that, I don't know that we would have the same luck.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got the speech and then the sustaining and the melodic and you've got the repetition and you've got movement and you've got the visual assistance and and you've got the, it's just fun. It's just enjoyable. It's and entertaining. And you're going that book every day.
1: Yeah. You're like, really? I swear I know what I'm doing. I don't really do everything the same every day. But they need that. They crave it. They love yes. it. And they need, yeah. once they've learned they can master something, you're going to see yes. that kid transform. Because yes. now they know I can do this. Because what they've learned up to them um, in most cases, you know, there's perfect cases, but in most cases, they've given up by the time they're in third grade because this is hard. I'm always wrong and I can't follow because it's fast and I can't hear, but I want to, but, you know, and we kind of get lost in that. So if we yeah. know what they like and we know what they're good at, again, always going back to those two things, you can make almost anything more interesting. <laughs> So that we can keep them engaged and teach them.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you share this with the parents? I mean, are the parents, you have a private practice, mm-hmm. and so it's going to be obviously easier to do that. But do the parents do this at home? I think we always want right. parents
1: to do more. And, you know, even as a parent myself, you know, you, at the end of the day, and you're like, oh no, I didn't do all these things I wanted to do. I've learned that parents of children with disabilities, that's 10 times worse than I experience it. And so, you know, we have to be gentle and so with parents and, and figure out even with them, what can they do? What's going to fit into right. their life? Because they right. won't listen to me and they won't do it. And it has nothing to do with them not wanting to, but did I give them a way to, to incorporate it, right? And so if they have a brown bear book, just See, that's,
0: that. I mean, you did it at therapy yeah. if they, yeah. But any of those that books, right,
1: that are yeah. repetitive. They're not super busy, you know, not Dr. Seuss, where, dear God, you've got all the words everywhere. Um, yes. But something simpler, yeah. they really enjoy that. And they really like even teaching other people that they can read. And in your other, you know, when I first started doing this, it was really fun because we would find out together, parents and I, that their child was reading. We just didn't know it. Yeah,
0: that's, that's exciting.
1: exciting.
0: Yeah. But yeah, with reading, you know, it's, it's a little different. Are we ready to move into number three? We've kind of sort of been hitting on this a bit, but ready for three. Okay, number three is practice speech in all activities.
1: And so this kind of like with parents, but now with therapists, look at all my goals. I have This is what my IEP says I have to do, what my IFSP says there. These are the goals I have to work on. And I don't see any speech goals here because in some schools, right, that's not considered what's making them not access learning. So sometimes we don't have speech goals or it's a sound speech goal, right? Or we might have MLU, which people think is language, but I'm going to fight that on another level if we have time later. But you are doing it anyway. If the child needs to be speaking in your language tasks, use it. Just make sure that you are using it and that they are practicing. So if it's MLU, you can go to reading or any of the the things you have and then trying to isolate when possible. What is it that's making this child read or talk, but they're not understood? And being kind of looking now knowing, if you didn't know before, that you're going to be looking at all these disorders at once in speech and a lot of people are like, gosh, I've got I to assess it. And I've got to like write it down and figure out which disorder it is. In a school, you probably won't do that, right? Or I hope not, because that would be really frustrating for everyone. But you will know just from listening, even a language sample. And I, what I tell people to do is record it. If you're allowed an audiovisual recording so that you can go and listen to it later, don't transcribe. Listen. And watch. I was going to say, and end. watch. Yes. And a lot of what I teach is watch, don't listen. Yes. that um, and, and scares people, but...
0: No, I totally understand. <laughs> they're doing things with their mouths
1: that are distorting their speech that has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about up till right now. And so if they have, if they're stuffy all the time, if they have hearing loss, if they're an open mouth posture, tongue forward kid, they always seem stuffy and sick. What do you think they would sound like? Well, at first they're going to be hyponasal. Round hyponasal, round round. yeah. And then they're, they have dysarthria, so every joint, every muscle in the body is looser than it should be. So it's going to move more than you and I will. And so if you have a jaw jut, it's going to sound something like this. If my jaw is so shy, I'm moving too much, it's going to distort my signal. And then if I have hearing loss, my door, it might also kind of distort that. And then I might have an artic issue. And so there's these reasons that they don't sound well. And trying to isolate them is kind of silly in a way. It's neat for you to know what it is. But which of those is really causing the biggest problem? And what can I do there? Maybe I need to try this and then, oh, let's say it like this. Maybe if I say it like this or like this, this is where I come back to my stuttering roots is... With fluency, we know that the the techniques that work are the ones that don't allow the, the stuttering to happen. So when we stretch out a word, when we use our easy onsets, what are we doing? We're making it impossible to stutter right there. And so with our kids, if they sing brown bear, brown bear, they can't make too much error there. And so melodic intonation therapy is one of the things I use every day because okay. it stretches it out. Now, mm-hmm. they're not going to sing everywhere they go. It's going to sound funny at first. But the, like you know, with motor speech disorders, we were chopping everything up, right? Jennifer. And then we had to deal with that. And then we had to squish it back together so that Jennifer could go into a sentence. And that was like, oh, man, there's got to be a better way. And we realized, oh, Okay. There's all sorts of words for it, but maybe we should just stretch it out. So Jennifer, right? And so if we use that or one that I've been using a little bit more, which is a voice technique, which is just speaking a bit louder. Hmm. And when I heard that, I was like, dear God, we need to keep these kids quieter, not louder, right? There's a lot of voice disorders and a lot of um, vocal (laughs) harm being done every day. But if Mm -hmm. you speak louder, you also can't speak fast, articulation will improve, and you'll have to articulate the sounds in those words a little bit more to be loud. And so can we find a way that they can do all of our tasks and also use these techniques and they'll model you quickly. That's why brown bear is beautiful, because they'll immediately go into brown bear tune without you telling them. So can they do that? when we're doing our other language work, or when they have to take a turn, or if you're playing games with executive functioning, I went to the store and got, instead of I went start and got, which you might hear a lot, anytime they speak, can we help them speak in that way, whatever it is, so that they can practice that while you're targeting
0: your language goals? You know, you were describing all of those things that are I call them obstacles. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the respiratory issues. And I know that's always or very frequently an issue with children with Down syndrome, the respiratory issues even just, and I know a lot of them have the heart issues, you know, just physical issues. And then you have the open mouth posture, and maybe you have a larger tongue and a smaller mouth. And I've always found too that a lot of Down syndrome kids, you know, if I turn to the side, this, because you have height with, this is called the length of your head, and this is shorter. So they were just dealt a hand with a lot of issues. And, you know, some things you do have to just compensate for. And, but that breathing one, you know, and I bet by the time they get to you in private practice that they have gone, you know, their physician, maybe their pediatrician has addressed that respiratory issue. But have you found a lot of kids that have the respiratory piece And I mean, that's an issue if you're going to work on resting position.
1: I teach a lot of classes just on these medical and anatomical and physiological issues with Down syndrome so that we know where it comes from.
0: But Mm -hmm. that
1: breathing, when I saw this piece of research, that children with Down syndrome, it takes them two to three times the energy to produce voice that you and I take for granted. So from going from silent to, uh, ah, takes them twice the effort our kids do everything hard, right? They speak hard, they move hard, they all, are, you know, they hit their friends when they're trying to be nice. They don't know what you know when they're younger in yeah. preschool for the first time. They spend all of their air in one word, and so they kind of go like this all the time. And now you can hear all that force on the vocal folds, which is why I was laughing earlier, but. That respiration, because not only is it hard to initiate, they have usually a very significant history with that. We probably have that sleep apnea or have had sleep apnea or will have sleep apnea. It's your number one issue for behaviors, by the way, if you need to, like, what's going on with this kid? Most of these kids don't sleep well, ever, ever. Oh my um, so imagine that and what that does to God. cognition. But that breath yes. piece, you know, we we try to tackle it from a bunch of different ways. But really with melodic intonation, as soon as I feel silly and I laugh at myself, like, come on, lady, think of something else to use. But really, it forces you also to control your airflow. And so you almost have to learn how to do that. Some of to our kids even speak yeah. on inhalation. I mean, they learn all these strange things because they feel, they just don't have controlled respiration at all, much less for Mm -hmm. blowing out a candle or speaking. Yes. So that's huge. And every child's going to have a slightly different
0: impact with that, but it's always there. Yeah, that is huge. Absolutely is huge. They are, I don't want to say lacking in, but they don't have the capability to utilize it. And to sort of identify, I need to sustain this and sort of, you know, dole out a little bit of air <laughs> so that I can make it through this sentence. Yeah, they just it, use it all at once. No, yeah. because
1: we this is an intellectual disorder we have to remember also. And that's really working oh, yeah. in memory and executive functioning. Oh, yeah. But no, they're not oh, yeah. going to, and they don't hear themselves. So that's, I don't think I put this on my thing, but they don't self-regulate and they don't, they have no meta skills. They don't hear their errors because for all the reasons that they had them in the first place, right? Their hearing or their stuffiness all the time. Everything they're hearing is distorted, so they never learn to self-correct or self-modulate. But if we can teach something like speaking a little bit louder, using a lot of intonation, using reading activities, they don't have to know that. They can copy me, do what I'm doing, or do it like this. We can kind of sing it. And now those things that I wanted to add in are already in. Because they're inherent within the activity, but also letting them know what you heard. So it sounds kind of mean. And we, you know, in fluency, we do this a lot. Oh, I heard right there were some bumps. So let's try it again like this. If we don't correct them or we don't point it out is a better way to do it and then give them a better way yeah. immediately. That's not yeah. a tiger. That's a house. Oh, yeah. That's a house. But if we need to do that also in how they speak. And if we do that, you will start to see self-correction really quick. It's really fun. Especially with reading, because they can go, wait a minute, I know that word. Oops. And they'll stop and they'll start over. So whenever you catch a kid that stops and says, oh, wait, and then they try again, that's like... That's when the clouds part and the angels fly down. Yeah, I know. It's so fun to see. But they didn't know that before. And so we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to make them feel like they don't know. There are ways. Recasting is probably the best term
0: for that. There's a lot of research on that one. I love it. Ooh, good, good. Well, we have about five minutes. Is there anything that you want to throw into the mix here?
1: So just resources, I think, that you'll see. You know, I mentioned Libby Kumar, but there's some other really good resources there for ideas too. Like,
0: I know you listen to this and you're like, oh my gosh, that made great sense. And then how do I use it? (laughs) Yeah. And I want to throw out something else here. People are going to be watching, listening to this on speechtherapypd.com. But also this is going to be on Podbean and TuneIn and Apple Podcasts. And so they won't have access. So would you mind giving them your email? And maybe people could write you and ask for that resources page. Yes. So my
1: email is Jennifer, full name, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. And then my company's named after a mountain, so it might help. Grayspeaktherapy.com. So G-R-A-Y-S, and then peak as in mountain therapy So Jennifer at grayspeaktherapy.com and I'm pretty good with email questions. I, I actually love them, <laughs> probably to my
0: demise. <laughs> so I promise I, I will get
1: back to you if you email me.
0: You know enough that you can just sort of add up all the issues and figure it out and maybe talk to them and brainstorm and between the two of you you can figure out some things that's going on and then what you can do. You That's know, the, the fun part. Because I, you know, I do now
1: at this point where I can just know. It's so yeah. fun. So hang yeah. in there. If you
0: hang in there, it does come.
1: That is fun. Now, do you have a website too? Yes. So it's grayspeaktherapy.com is the website. Okay. I haven't been okay. great about updating it. I am doing more now on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. It's grayspeaktherapy.com on Facebook. And then my other one where I do more research type stuff that I'll put out and share is on Connected Speech. And that's also a website. And I'm hoping to start making making materials and putting them on there so that you can go straight there. But I'm in the process of learning that. So it's not great either place yet. But if you can find me at Connected Speech or Speech Connects on Instagram and then on Facebook, or just go to my name and then you'll see.
0: Kind of, okay. 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 Or email you and they can't find you. I mean, Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, and I remember sort of halfway teasing you last time that I'm waiting for the book to come out about all of this. Okay, girl. <laughs> Saying that for
1: ten years, it's really <laughs>
0: hard to uh, do. It know, is. Because, it absolutely. I, mean, I would is. love nothing
1: more than to sit down and write it. But
0: I know we we would love for you to sit down and write it. How about? a blog or something, you know, just a 600 word blog or something with some of these ideas, yes. you know? Question, do they have trouble processing? This is for you. <laughs> do they have trouble processing perhaps because they are distracted by the socializing, <laughs> e.g. impressing, interacting with peers, etc. Is that an issue?
1: Yes, but I think that the, what they're doing instead might be a little bit more important. So in the sense that, A mom brought this up to me once where she said, I'm taking my child out of school and I'm homeschooling her because they all told me to put her in school because she needed that social interaction. And now at school, they're telling me that that's all she does and that that she needs to stop socially interacting and pay attention. Okay, well, this brings us to the crux of it. And before I had heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Because I was like, keep her in school, keep her in school. But she was always getting in trouble. So it didn't work because you know of everything we just talked about but possibly can we find a way to use that with a peer model or I know that school therapists you're angels all of you because a lot of what I'm saying is like in a perfect world right how do you do this in a classroom and part of me can't even answer it because I get as flustered just thinking about it how would I do that specifically I think if we can keep both this is a terrible answer if we can keep both and find a way to get that child back on track using their peers and kind of taking away some of that silliness, which is hard, so that we don't lose that. There's a lot of good stuff in that silliness. Can we redirect it and use it? And the answer might be no. You may have to pull them out for a while. And I just heard someone say this because we're not supposed to say this anymore, right? Like, nope, they're in. it's all inclusion all in the classroom. There's really great things there. But if we don't have the skills to do that, we may have to come out of the classroom for a bit and then go back in the classroom and practice and doing some of, or we need to go in this, you know, like those, I always think of science fair projects where they have the, you know, the three-sided board. Maybe we come in here and we practice and then we do a little bit outside. So they're still in the classroom, those types of things. I can't imagine how hard that is, but I think if we're savvy enough, we can figure it out. You know, we talk about giving more processing time. I've recently with two clients that I'm currently seeing, it's hurting them. Um, That Mm -hmm. processing time, remember working memory, you don't have a lot of time. Dead time turns into internalizing and thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. So if they didn't Mm -hmm. even understand the question, waiting for them to answer will not work. And I've Mm -hmm. seen us all make this mistake In, in the span of 10 seconds span of two seconds I've watched, they're not there anymore because it was like, she's asking me a question. I'm here, you know, like whatever. And now, now they're waiting for me. And I'm like, what? Because I forgot what we were kind of doing because yeah. all I heard was a question tone and I'm out. So yeah. sometimes going yeah. faster is better too.
0: Huh. So that
1: might help in a classroom sometimes with that question. Okay. Harder.
0: Interesting. Oh, Jennifer, you are a wealth of knowledge. You are. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. And I'm going to just wrap up here. There's a few things that I need to say. And I do want to thank all of you for being here and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you not only learn practical information, you earn CEUs. And as I mentioned, you are going to be able to access this audio course through speechtherapypd.com, and then also access any of the free episodes on Apple Podcast and so on. So I also appreciate, greatly appreciate your positive, supportive comments and your reviews. And also to plan ahead on the speech link, Dr. Deborah Ross Swain, SLP, will share her practical knowledge on how to instill confidence and joy in our language kids who suffer from educational trauma. And that date is Thursday, March 10 at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And as we wrap up, just log in to your SpeechTherapyPD.com account, take the quiz, do the eval, and print out your certificates. And I do hope that you know just how much you are appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do with your therapy kids. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to SpeechTherapyPD.com. And for everything else, visit CharBochart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.